Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, Philadelphia's premier zoning information website that's powered by Anastasio Law, a zoning, land use, real estate, and business firm in Center City, Philadelphia. I'm Vern Anastasio, a zoning and land use attorney and the principal at Anastasio Law. I was born and raised in this town, so I myself am Philly Built. And what's fascinating to me is the growth economic expansion and transformation of so many of our neighborhoods. All while we still battle citywide problems like crime and poverty, homelessness and addiction, which often impede growth. I think Philadelphia finds itself at a critical point in its story. And here at Philly Built, we'll explore the state of the city and its future through the eyes of those driving the surge of real estate and economic development as well as those who try to manage it or live with it and all its impacts. So if you love Philadelphia and are fascinated by what lies ahead in this city's real estate and economic development future, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to Philly Built. So at phillyzoning.com, we often get folks who send us emails asking us questions uh, that we thought we'd answer here at Philly Built. So let's get going with the mailbag. Hey, Vern, it's producer Joe. How are you doing today? Hey, Joe. I'm doing well. Good, good. First question from the mailbag is this, and I bet you that it's one you get a lot. The reader says, I found a storefront zoned CMX1. I want to open a restaurant. Can I do this as a matter of right since it's zoned commercial? No, a sit-down restaurant would require a CMX2 classification. CMX1 is primarily reserved for lower impact, lower traffic type of uh, businesses, be it an, an accounting office, a sole practitioner dentist, a sole practitioner doctor, um, a lawyer's office. So if you want to get that restaurant, either look for a CMX2 property or go for a variance uh, with the CMX1. That can still happen. It'll just take about seven or eight months. How often do you think it comes to pass that, uh, and this is me asking this, uh, that someone gets to what they think is opening night and then boom, because they thought they had commercial zoning, but alas, not CMX2? Well, people often get uh, pretty far into the process. I wouldn't say up to opening night, uh, but at some point, uh, there will be someone from license and inspection to come out uh, to uh, offer a certificate of occupancy uh, or to examine some sorts of uh, construction. And at that point, they will be notified that uh, uh, first they need to get a use permit for the restaurant before they could move forward. Great. Thanks, Vern. Anytime. Today, Philadelphia City Council Member Maria Quinones Sanchez joins us on Philly Built. Council Member Sanchez represents the 7th Council District, which includes neighborhoods like South and West Kensington, Feltonville, Hunting Park, and Norris Square. Many of these neighborhoods are going through some tremendous real estate development and economic expansion, while they still struggle with the challenges brought about by poverty, crime, and homelessness. Council Member Sanchez started her career working with the legendary Marion Tasco, a council member from Philadelphia's Northwest neighborhoods. 
I first met Maria in the early 1990s while she worked on the staff of council member Angel Ortiz and I as an aide in the first district council office. She first joined city council in 2008. Today, she's a pro-growth council member who consistently champions new quality affordable housing for the working class people of her district. She is literally at the center of the challenges and opportunities that Philadelphia's real estate explosion has created. And she's with us today on Philly Built. Thank you very much for spending a little bit of time with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Vernon, for the uh, opportunity. Look forward to the conversation. I would like to get your, because you represent such a vibrant section of the city, I'd like to get your take, um, larger picture, as far as development, real estate, and economic, um, where is the city of Philadelphia today, and where do you see it going? So we're at an intersection point um, where we could become a model for a city that can manage and lift people out of poverty and really create mixed, diverse income neighborhoods. You know, we still have a poverty challenge. Um, we have a segregation challenge. And I am of the belief that policy helps shape some of that. I represent a district that is now at extremes, right? South Kensington, that's experiencing a whole lot of development. And then the heart of Kensington, opioid addiction. And then neighborhoods like Hunting Park, Beltonville, and Frankfurt, who really are some of the most affordable housing models that we've created in this city, um, and very, very diverse. I, you know, I'm very aware that Unless we take care of the most vulnerable folks in districts like mine, we will not meet the challenge as an entire city. So what do, what do I mean by that? Yeah. So in, in, in neighborhoods like South Kensington, where we're seeing a lot of the market rate development, we need to be more intentional around incentivizing the affordability rate. You know, I've lived in Norris Square, which is part of South Kensington for 26 years. This is where I've raised my children. And when I first moved here, everybody thought I was crazy. Um, you know, I bought a beautiful brownstone home. It was a neighborhood near a park. All of the amenities we now define with fancy terms, but it was like a walkable one. We had a hospital around the corner. We had a corridor. We were close to the L stop. All of the things, um, access points that you want to create um, in a neighborhood. You know, now we have a challenge because there's this feeling of displacement. And I'll tell you, Philadelphia has done an incredible job at creating toolboxes to keep people in their homes, which is the most affordable home they can be in. But we still have this feeling of separation um, even with Lou, you know, program long-term occupants who could really freeze their taxes, our senior freeze, our deferral payment products. I'm the author of UPA, which is income-based tax program. You know, the author of TAP, which is water affordability. Even with all of these toolboxes, there's this feeling. And I think what is missing is a leadership moment where, you know, we need strong leadership that says to folks, we're going to 
get out of and make a more equitable recovery, but we're going to have to make some choices that are going to be bumpy and disruptive in the way. And I think that's what's been missing in this conversation. I've done a lot of stuff around affordability that I'm happy to talk about, but if I'm doing it in isolation of the rest of the city, then we're still going to be where we are today, which is with very much segregation and concentrated poverty, which leads to the crime and the challenges that, that we all live. Agreed. Uh, and I think you're right. There have been for years uh, different programs that keep folks in their homes to try and keep things affordable. But there is a general sense, and I do think it's, it's been growing, that um, there is the, the uh, a, a sort of a clash and an uneasiness about that G word, gentrification. Um, is it something we can manage? Um, and not by small programs here and tweaking the tax code here, and but larger, bigger picture, 58,000 feet, you know, bigger picture. How do we so, manage gentrification? And is it something that can be managed? So what I will say to you is government cannot do this alone, right? And we have a very robust um, constituency in the community development corporation world that have been incredible. They've done a lot of work in laying groundworks in neighborhoods where we saw absolutely no investment. They've gone into those neighborhoods and created markets. But the next wave is going to require the type of public-private partnership unlike anything we've experienced, right? And so I'll give you an example. Um, the housing development in, in, the, in the public space is very expensive. There's an issue of capacity. There's a limited toolbox. You know, you have to wait for these low-income tax credit deals that come from the state. The city only gets six to eight of them a year. We're never going to scale up, right, if we try to do this in isolation of each other. And I'll give credit to the private sector, you know, who worked with me on the creation of the land bank, you know, the people from the builder, Building Industry Association, the greater um, uh, real estate folks, you know, really came together around the creation of the land bank. But now we haven't met our potential because now the tension points are how do we create and incentivize public-private partnerships? I am of the belief the majority of the affordable units are in the private sector hands. As much as PHA, Philadelphia Housing Authority, has a portfolio, as much of our CDCs do, the majority of the affordable units will always be in the private sector. And so now we're at this point where we really have to have honest conversations about how do we incentivize those kind of partnerships so we can scale up the affordability and create that mixed income diversity that we want. And so right. what, what becomes the challenge? It always is about resources, right? Every time when we created the housing sub-fund um, in, in city council, in the housing trust fund, because um, we wanted to figure out how we incentivize this, there's a tension point between the community development corporation saying, you can't give our limited resources to the private sector. Um, and so it, we can't get to that point where it's like, no, we need both of you to work together so we can scale up because the private market's going to do what the private market's going to do, and we're behind it. And oftentimes, a developer would rather just write a check to the fund than build those units for whatever reason. I guess it's better business for them or bottom line. How do we disincentivize that? So, you know, we, we made a modification to the mixed income housing bonus, which was another uh, piece of legislation that I authored, um, which was you know, in most people's minds, very successful. It was about 140 projects where people opted to either build on site 
um, units on affordability in, in exchange for high bonus, or they paid into the housing trust fund. We um, came to the conclusion that the payment in lieu of um, was cheaper than on-site units. Although I will say, when you look at the 2020 report around mixed income, um, the majority of the units got built in my district. And that's not an accident. That is because we have really tried to work um, with developers um, and, and get them to really work with us around this affordability and the value and the importance of having the on-site units. Um, so when we modified the program last year and we increased the in lieu of, um, the building industry was very upset at us and said, well, these models don't work, right? So we're kind of at a standstill around what does it take? Even if you pay in lieu of into the housing trust fund, your payment is not enough for us to create a new unit. So now we're kind of at a, again, at that intersection where you know, if we want to have a mixed income bonus program that works, we need the on-site units. So we don't want you paying in lieu of, but we need developers to understand that if we're going to move away from the segregation that we have in the neighborhoods, we need the on-site units. We don't need the payment in lieu of. That's right. And are you talking citywide or just the seventh district? So again, that becomes one of our challenges when we did, um, the modifications in the mixed income housing bonus, we had members of city council that exempted themselves either in total from the mixed income bonus programs or certain zoning designations. For instance, there was a lot of um, folks who don't didn't want to provide mixed income bonuses for RM1 properties. You're a zoning attorney. That's mm -hmm. residential mixed properties. Right. Um, so they exempted themselves out in certain categories. And this is what's created sort of a fragmented um, approach, right? And it's really not congruent with our housing action plan. And part of the reason, very legitimately so, is that in neighborhood to neighborhood, People feel differently about density. People feel differently about parking. People feel differently about open spaces. So I'm not one to say one such size fits all, but at some point, again, an executive and a leadership moment, at some point you have to say, we have to stop segregation in the city, right? We talk about redlining, but then here we have segregated policies. We have to stop segregation and we have to create affordability opportunities in every part of the city. And the right. only way to get there is through some of these policies. So in, as opposed to people just blocking themselves totally out of those designations, let's talk about where in those districts affordability um, should be supported. Well, some might say that that is really an inherent problem with Philadelphia city government, that the district council person could just opt out or opt out as large swaths of their own district. Um, that's maybe that's just a little too much power. Uh, and if, especially if the executive, you know, on the second floor would come out with a policy citywide. Um, I think one of the challenges that investors and developers have is that they are, there really are 10 different kingdoms, 10 well, separate I, districts. And that is a result of us not properly funding planning. That is a result of us not properly engaging and supporting the planning commission to engage residents in a discussion about what they're for, right? So what district council people do when they exempt themselves out, by the way, at responding to their constituents sure. is the way of saying stop because we're not ready and because we haven't done this work. So 
most council districts require a lot of remapping to the zoning code revision we did a decade ago. The remapping hasn't happened because the city planning commission had, does not have the resources, right? And right. this, and the, to to be able to go out and engage, I'm one of the most remap districts. We're like at ninety percent of the district, and Vern, that has been bumpy, right? These are conversations sure. that are I, not fun to have. And and you you're heavily involved. You know, not every district member is as involved in this type of stuff. Um, maybe that's because you have an interest in it. Maybe it's because you see the need to do it. But, you know, you have te 10 different levels of efforts as well. Yeah, and I think that becomes a challenge. Again, this is where the executive and the council pieces fail to come together, and then you lead to all this friction. So in South Kensington, um, where I shared district lines um, along with Council Member Squilla and Council Member Clark, um, you know, I have six RCOs in this area, and they all don't agree with me on affordability. They do all don't agree around parking. And we literally took 12 items that were not zoning related, and we spent a year and a half debating them, right? What's the parking situation? Small blocks with no parking. Um, what is, you know, what are some of the green space issues, right, that people were concerned about? And came up with this 12-point plan that we're working through. And I can tell you, not everybody was happy in this process, but, you know, I had to force it because I couldn't just block projects in an inconsistent way, you know, with one neighborhood group, you know, just wants all the market rate. Um, they don't care about affordability. And the other neighborhood is saying the affordability that we're promoting is not even affordable to the market, right? Because the income level at the, in that area is different. And so trying to build consensus was very, very difficult. Um, and I felt comfortable that at the end of that process, and it still evolves because we always have challenges, we're off of uh, transfer-oriented development. I couldn't TOD all my L-stops because some residents wanted it, some residents didn't, so we're still working through it. But my thing is, if everybody is a little frustrated by it, then we're, we're at a better place um, because we all agree that we all don't agree on what the neighborhood should look like. Some folks welcome gentrification, and that's why they're here, long-term residents, feel this push and this and, and this drag. So I try to balance those interests because I want developers to come in and have predictability because I want residents to tell folks, this is what we'd like to see in these developments, whether it's the green piece, the affordability, um, and, and that's more predictable. And you want to avoid all of this one-off conversation. And, right. for, and, and in another piece that is becoming very problematic to me um, is these community benefit um, agreements with cash associated with it. I, I, that to me is like opening up a Pandora's box, a Pandora's box that I don't want to be a part of. Um, yeah, and that's I, what I, we're starting to see. I've been at several zoning hearings where uh, an applicant uh, will um, speak about a CBA, a Community Benefits Agreement. And that is a private agreement, for those who are listening, a private agreement between the developer and or investor and... Um, the registered community or organization or RCO, uh, that it's sort of a, a side agreement, a side contract, wherein an investor or developer will agree to do certain things uh, and in exchange for the community support. Now, lots of times those things I've written and, and entered into these CBAs myself are certain things like we'll fund a, a 
litter removal program. Uh, we'll plant trees. We'll add additional lighting uh, to a block. We'll, we'll actually install surveillance cameras if they want to run a particular block. But then the other, there's, there's also um, the, the possibility and the danger of getting into cash payments, uh, cash payments that are um, not trackable. Um, who knows if they're going into the correct account um, or the correct hands. How, and that speaks, I think, to the whole RCO process in a way. I think it's an improvement to the pre-2012 rules where going to a community group was only an option, not a requirement. Uh, now it's a requirement, and I think that's good because it gives folks a voice. However, um, do they do those rules does the code need to be buttoned up a little bit to avoid impropriety? Again, this is about resources and support to the planning commission who is charged with managing and ensuring that RCOs um, have whatever tools they need, right? And we saw it during the pandemic in particular where we had community groups who couldn't get on Zoom and there was a capacity issue and we really lived the disparity about certain groups that were, you know, didn't miss a beat and other groups who just couldn't get themselves together. For me, the cash payments are problematic, um, uh, uh, to any organization because, again, in a, in a neighborhood like South Kensington, where I know that the six RCOs don't agree philosophically on some issues, you know, and so, you know, five of the groups strongly support affordability, one of the groups doesn't, and then that one group begins to get paid off, right, and developments don't have affordability, that's a problem. And, right. and a problem that I want to lean into because it's not acceptable. Um, you know, you can't, an RCO can't then take that one piece that they disagree with the rest of the, their, their colleagues and say, you know, you're going to be able to cash out with us um, as opposed to a development that may happen two blocks north with a different RCO where the, the major um, request is affordability. So, you know, I'm in that place right now. Right. Um, I have uh, two projects that are in similar situations. And I've said to the RCO, I this this does not pass the test. Um, and I don't want to go down this road. I think community benefits agreements around green space and some of the things you highlighted, lighting, um, trees are that's in a community amenity that everybody um, benefits from, but a fund that then goes to particular projects that only a select group of people are part of, that's not a road I want to enter. Yeah, it's it can get dangerous. After the break, another question from our mailbag. Hey, Vern, uh, producer Joe with another question from the mailbag. Producer Joe, what do you have for me today? <laughs> okay, uh, I, I think that this is probably a pretty common one too. Um, the the our, our correspondent asks us, "I'm making improvements to my home that I want to shield from added taxation. How and when should I apply for the ten-year tax abatement?" Good question. First of all, you shouldn't apply for it as a layperson. Uh, and you don't even need a, a lawyer to do it, but you do need your contractor to do it. Uh, and you have to stay on top and make sure that the contractor does in fact do it. And they should do it when they pull their building permits. So when they're submitting and pulling for building permits, that's exactly when they should start the process of the, the tax abatement application so that you get the benefit of having the, value, the increase in value of any improvement you make abated and shielded from additional assessments 
uh, from the Office of Property Assessment. Okay, but what if my contractor didn't file that paperwork and then I find out when I go to file? Well, there may be uh, a way to deal with that. Uh, you may, in fact, still be within the amount of time uh, for you to file a traditional appeal of your new assessment. If that time has passed, however, uh, it's going to be a little uphill, but there is a thing called nunc pro tunc. That, that's not Italian, that's Latin that we learn in law school, and it's a nunc pro tunc appeal, which permits the Board of Revision of Taxes to allow us to appeal the assessment even though the time to do so has come and gone. And one of the uh, ways and reasons for which they may grant that is if when a layperson uh, relies on the professionalism and the representations of, of a professional, uh, a contractor, an engineer, an architect. So if we're able to demonstrate that you as a homeowner or taxpayer uh, relied on the professionalism and the representations of a third party, and that third party failed to meet its obligation, the Board of Revision of Taxes may, but not always, but may, permit us to put on our appeal um, after the fact. Cool, thanks. And if you're out there in Radioland and you have questions for, about stuff like this, go to phillyzoning.com. Info at phillyzoning.com. And after the break, more with Councilmember Maria Quinones Sanchez. Let's talk about uh, affordability as it relates to the multifamily, the RM1 projects. Um, is it not more affordable to build six, seven, eight, ten family dwellings, units, uh, than just building a single family home and then trying to uh, rent it out or sell it? And I, and I bring that up because there seems to be, in, in some neighborhoods, not all, an innate... Um, an innate desire to have fewer multifamily dwellings. I hear it all the time. We're a single family community. We need more single family homes, but at the same time, they also want the units to be affordable. So as someone who advocates more often than not for an investor or developer, uh, it's easy to, at least as far as an investor is concerned, if you want these units to be more affordable, then please give me the right to build multifamily. How do you juggle both of those interests? So I think that, you know, this RCA5, you know, these neighborhoods where single family, um, again, we, in, in the south of Lehigh, we engaged those six RCOs and we we did what was called the corrective zoning, upzoning of certain areas. And part of the process, and again, it was very bumpy, part of the conversation was like, where can we promote density, right? And we actually ended up taking many blocks in South Kensington and saying, they should be armed ones because it's 5th Street, it's 6th Street, it's 2nd Street. You know, it's a big wide street. Um, that should happen. And then we negotiated and reached the consensus on the smaller blocks, you know, Whole Street, Palethor, you know, where there's no parking and said, okay, in those places, we want to do single home. That took a process of us really talking through with, neighbor, with neighbors around the weighing the pluses and the minus. The other thing is that we have to expand our product lines. When you look at comparable cities um, or that have 
some of the poverty and housing challenges that we do, whether it's DC, Baltimore, or Boston, Chicago, um, some, who have some of the same mixed income housing bonus programs and others, the difference is they have done multifamily home ownership opportunities where we haven't created them in the market. We're actually working on one of the first um, multifamily affordable um, units, uh, duplexes, um, on a project with, between APM, which is one of our bigger CDCs, and Tom Scanapico, who's one of the biggest developers. Um, and we're doing 102 units, um, half of them which will be affordable. And along Burke Street, which is a, a large street, we're creating condo opportunities, dual um, home ownership models. So I think we have to introduce those product models. It's not something that is that Philadelphians have done, right? We've done high-rise condos, but we've never looked at duplex, triplex home ownership opportunities. And so we have to introduce those into the market because then I think people will be more receptive um, to them. And so that is my hope with that particular project. And we're doing one similar with ASA, which is another one of our CDCs on the, in, in the Somerset Street area creating condo home ownership opportunities I because that's what Chicago has done, right? Um, and it's worked for them. And so I think once that product line takes foot in Philadelphia, I think you're going to get more willingness by neighbors to say, okay, I'll take a few of those in the area, right? And you're not saying you're going all extreme one way or the other, but in certain blocks that are big and, and meet, some of the spacing requirements, um, we should welcome that product. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it also really is at the core of the concern. Long-term uh, residents are less concerned if you rent or own, but more concerned that you have ownership, do you have a certain feel of ownership in the community? Um, and be they living in a single family home or a multifamily, that option, the homeowner option or owning part of the community, uh, I think is important to long-term residents. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, it's a model that we'll introduce in South Kensington and if it's embraced, you know, we will scale it up. I'm definitely a strong proponent of it. I think that's the way to go when we look at extended families, culturally Latinos, you know, I could foresee, you know, mom and, you know, grandmom and grandpa living on the first floor and, you know, multiplying on the second floor. I think it creates opportunities for, again, to bring up the income level of certain families and extended families and give them that ownership opportunity. Quick question on the tax abatement. Um, where do you, what's your thoughts of it today um, now that it's been tweaked? Um, talk about how it's been tweaked so folks can understand that briefly. And then, uh, you know, some folks think it should be just gone altogether, that somehow the school district is being robbed of, of much needed funds. Other people say, it, but for the 10-year tax abatement, we wouldn't have the economic development that we've seen over the last 22 years or so. What are your thoughts? So, you know, I know we have some challenges with the uniformity clause. I'm of the belief that it is now an, uh, a time for us to look at the abatement as a tool that we should not have to do standardized across the board, right? I was a vote 10 years ago um, to cap the abatement at $400,000. And the reason I supported it at, at that time is because we're a union town where construction is expensive. Right. And to me, the abatement was about that cost of that construction and subsidizing that. And then it lost its way because then you're doing multi million dollar homes who are getting bigger breaks, right, than even in the affordable space where abatements 
have been a tool for our CDCs and our public sectors to create homes. So we, we now are at a place where we should be legally challenging our ability to have a different abatement rate structure in different neighborhoods for the purposes of creating different tools for different neighborhoods. I, I've always been of the belief, you know, I would say this was 10 years ago, 400,000. I think the best abatement product line is capping it at $500,000. You support all of the markets in that way. And then you get away from this notion that multi-million dollar um, properties get fully abated, right? When you looked at even the controller's report um, around the abatement structure, 70% of the utilization was for these high rate properties. And that's the part that people have the most challenges with. So, you know, keep the full abatement, keep it at $500,000. That's more equitable, right? Um, it gets money into the school district faster than it does, but it allows us to continue in the public sector um, to deal with the cost, the construction cost, um, and particularly now with the logistics nightmare that we're having in a post-COVID world, that it supports the actual construction of new properties. Yeah, the cost of construction and just materials has really gone through the roof this past uh, 18 months or so. Okay, for, so from new construction and new development to old school economic development, neighborhood development. Talk to me about El Centro de Oro, the golden block. Um, let, let folks know what that is. Uh, mm -hmm. As a big, you know, as a fan of neighborhood uh, commercial corridors, I've always been fascinated by it. Uh, how has it sustained itself for all these generations? And tell folks where it is. So on 5th and Lehigh, between Lehigh and Allegheny Avenue, ASE, which is Hispanic Contractors Enterprise, Hispanic Association of Contractors, has been around, I guess they're probably celebrating 40-plus years. And they've been our partner on the housing development side and on the Carter management side of Centro de Oro. And I actually had the pleasure of working on the branding um, or the updated rebranding when I first got elected. So we have these metal palm trees if you come right. through the neighborhood. I love them. I love them. I love them. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was a little expensive, but I, I, Bill Salas, who was retiring, this was one of his last projects. So I, um, I conceded a lot of, you know, we'll spend this and we'll see how it goes. But it's been key because, you know, since then, uh, Taller Puerto Riqueño on Fifth and Huntington created their multi million dollar arts center. So when you look at Fifth Street North in that, in that Carter, there's some anchor institutions. Um, and then we have a Carter that has struggled, but it has evolved, right? We're in the middle right now of working on a uh, commercial mixed income um, property um, on the 2700 block of Fifth Street, again, with Asset, where we're doing a commercial first floor and 33 affordable um, studio units on the second and third story. So we're trying to introduce some density there um, to try to, again, um, bring more commercial by also bringing more residential walkable right. uh, uh, residents to it. So ASA has done a really good job of working with us. We have several social services providers. We have Jerry's Fashion, which I used to shop at when I was a kid who's still there <laughs> and, uh, and other um, um, stores. But again, that's a public-private partnership where we couldn't do it without ASA. We've introduced different elements to it. We have Fairhill Square Park, which is on 4th and Lehigh, that we fully renovated and, and created a stage area for it. So they can, I'll say now, programs some of that space. Um, we built a new school across the street, Julia de Burgos, where we have, you know, the school accessing and, and activating the 
public space. So again, all of the things we talk about that make neighborhoods attractive. Um, and when you look at the footprint, what is interesting about it is it's the 19133, which the medium income is about $12,000. Right. So when you think about that in the context of that, the fact that, as you said, that this neighborhood has survived, right? We um, we worked on a project on 7th and Lehigh. That's now part of Council President Clark's district. I did the project and then he got the new shopping mall, but we created a new shopping strip mall that has a Burger King, it has a bank, you know, it has the supermarket, it has um, veterans housing. Um, we converted the old Edison site into and activated into a commercial space. So it's a very walkable. You got a post office that you can walk to. You have supermarkets you can walk to. You have a carter that you can walk to. And for many folks in that bracket, you know, they don't need to go anywhere else. I mean, obviously, we want them to see the, the rest of the city, but we've created a neighborhood that without a car, you have access to everything you need. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm fascinated by it. It's some of, some of the best food in the city on that block. Um, and that takes me to this question. Where do you go? for the best when you're sitting down for some of the best puerto rican food uh that you can get where where is it so you know i have mixed emotions around this um we have you know there's been a growing dominican community so we have a lot of dominican um, mm -hmm. restaurants we have a growing portuguese community um so i'm a fan of a lot of the portuguese restaurants on castor avenue on Mustay, Tio Pepe, okay. some of the other ones so I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, yeah. I can, we could do the restaurant tour. <laughs> like bar hopping and eating. Um, so, you know, we have staples like Tierra Colombiana that is Cuban, um, Mexican, Colombian that has been in the neighborhood, you know, 30 years. Um, still one of the best brunch places. So I think now the diversity within the Latino community has created the space where depending on what you want to eat. I mean, we have a supermarket at Harrogate Plaza that has a food food kitchen in it, right? And a lot of the um, service workers go there for lunch that I could tell you has some of the best food. You know, really? the women who work, oh my God, it is, you know, you're going to splurge. But, you know, if you're lucky, you can get lamb. Sometimes you can get um, rabbit. I mean, you could, like, they do mix the food um, and it's very, very good. But I like, you know, the place that I think has been a real... Um, good anchor to a Puerto Rican vibe has been Isla Vilde, which is on American in Lehigh. Okay. Um, there's a young couple that is now managing it. It's been through several management. It's a shopping mall that Ray Pastrana, um, one of our local businesses, you know, one of the first, you know, Puerto Ricans to create, you know, a shopping area. Like I said, there's a post office there. There's several other stores there. There's, a, you know, um, but Isla Velde is one of my favorites. Um, you know, it has a really nice bar scene and Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, it becomes a dancing scene. Um, so um, it's a double-edged sword. I can go there and have fun, but I also go there and get a lot of work. <laughs> okay, I'm sure. Well, it is Friday night, so I might have to get up there. So thank you very much for the tip. Um, yeah. Before we wrap up, I just want to, I have to ask you, um, are you running for mayor? So the Board of Ethics um, says that we are allowed to say that we are exploring the possibilities, obviously, there's a lot of discussion. Um, most of the candidates that are on the list are resigned to run candidates, you know, whether it's Rebecca Reinhardt, um, Sherelle Parker. You know, and that Sarah means Green. for, for, for you, folks who don't understand what that means, that means you must resign your current position before you announce 
uh, that you're seeking uh, the mayor's position. Exactly. So what I will say is that um, we have a team of folks um, and we, we will continue to be on the top two of that list. Um, I do believe that after 99 male mayors, um, there will be a woman in 2023. I think among them, um, I think it'll be a woman of color when you look at the primary voters. And so when you look at it that way, I consider myself one of the top two candidates, uh, potential candidates for uh, 2023. Well, we'll keep an eye out for sure. (laughs) Councilmember Maria Quinones-Sanchez, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Philly and um, uh, Philly Built and everyone um, associated with it. Thanks you very much. Thank you, Vernon. Look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. I love Philly. We can do this. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Okay, Vern. I have one final question for you for this week. Bring it on. And it's a little bit of a wild card question. And just (laughs) the very brief question to me is like suggesting like a screenplay or or a buddy movie or some kind of crazy TV show. our buddy here wants to know, I own a lot that's zoned RSA5, zoned single-family residential. Can I drive my mobile home, this is me adding the parath- parenthetical, in the city of Philadelphia, <laughs> can I drive my mobile home onto the lot and use it as my residence? Very Christmas vacation of you <laughs> to add. <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all time. But uh, uh, the answer is no. Um, First of all, the mobile home is considered a vehicle um, through the eyes of the city of Philadelphia. It has wheels and it can be driven. Uh, Secondly, if the lot is zoned residential single family, RSA 5, if it's RSA 5, that means it has to be attached. That A, RSA, is attached and it's going to be impossible for you to actually attach your mobile home to the two, presumably, two row homes on either side of you. So, uh, so you have the fact that it can't be attached. You have the fact that it's uh, a vehicle. And there's not likely to be a curb cut there in order for you to actually drive it, to jump the curb onto the lot. Uh, so in a nutshell... I'm afraid you got to go somewhere else with the RV. And I'm a big fan of them, but not in a neighborhood that's RSA 5. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's today's show, folks. If you've got a question you'd like to get to us, please email us at info at phillyzoning.com. Or if you just want to learn more about Philly Zoning, go to the source, phillyzoning.com.